Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is James Mallinson. James is Senior Lecturer in Sanskrit and Classical and Indian Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. He took his BA in Sanskrit and Old Iranian at the University of Oxford, followed by an MA in Area Studies, South Asia, with Ethnography as his main subject at SOAS. His doctoral thesis submitted to the University of Oxford was a critical edition and annotated translation of the Kechari Vidya, an early text of Hatha Yoga. Dr. Mallinson has published eight books, all of which are editions and translations of Sanskrit yoga texts, epic tales, and poetry. His recent work has used philological study of Sanskrit texts, ethnography, and art history to explore the history of yoga and yogis. His most recent book, written in collaboration with Dr. Mark Singleton, is Roots of Yoga, which was published by Penguin Classics in 2017. From 2015 to 2020, Dr. Mallinson will be leading a European Research Council-funded research project on the history of Hatha Yoga, which will result in 10 critical editions and translations of key yoga texts, four monographs, and two large conferences to be held at SOAS in 2017 and 2019. So with that, hello, James. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Jacob. So it's a, it's a real pleasure to talk to you today, and um, I'm looking forward to having a discussion about um, your really groundbreaking research on the translation and of, of key Hatha Yoga texts, some of which have never been translated into English. But before we get into that conversation, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your own kind of personal story and what led you to the research work that you do. Ah, okay. Yeah, that, that's, that's reasonably easy. I think that, um, <laughs> that was, was all triggered by a... Uh, by going to India at the age of 17 in between. Uh, so we have in, in the UK, students quite often take what's called a gap year between, uh, how do you, I think you, you would say high school and college. So we would say between school and university. And I'd already, um, for various strange reasons, probably the most important of which was meeting my prospective tutors, I'd already just decided to read Sanskrit as an undergraduate. Mm. And friends of mine had been in India on gap years and come back and regaled me with tales about what a wonderful time they'd had. And so I then, after earning a bit of money in London, I then went off to India at the beginning of 1988. And I had seven months ahead of me and a, a pocket full of traveler's checks and not much plan. And off I went and had such a great time that, you know, that changed my life. In fact, the friend that I went with, Alex Watson, who was a friend from school, it also changed his life. He's now a professor of Indian philosophy at Ashoka University in Delhi. Oh, wow. And so I then came back to England at the end. Well, at the end of that trip, I spent a few weeks in Kashmir mm. with a bunch of sadhus and yogis who were about to do the Amarnath Yatra. And so that was the kind of the first time I properly got to hang out with, with sadhus. And that became a kind of bigger and bigger part of every trip. I made to India after that, and I've been to I've been to India every year since. Mm. Um, probably spend a total of I don't know around ten or eleven or twelve years in India. Uh, most of it, or a lot of it, living and travelling with yogis and sadhus. And so, after my uh, undergraduate degree in Sanskrit, I wanted to you know somehow keep uh, keep keep being able to justify going off to India and spending long periods li living with these yogis. And the obvious way to do that was to sort of continue my academic uh, career. I decided to, um, as you said in the introduction, my MA, I went and did an MA at SOAS 
which the major subject was ethnography or an anthropology. And that was great. I did enjoy that. But particularly at that time, I think there was a lot of uh, theory and method and kind of theoretical analysis going on in anthropology. And I got slightly uh, fed up with that. Um, and so when it came to returning to continue my academic career, and, what, and I, I knew I wanted to focus on, you know, somehow learn more about these uh, yogi and sadhu uh, traditions I, I was living with, I decided I would use um, my Sanskrit skills to do that. So for my PhD, I was very lucky to get accepted to study under Professor Alexis Sanderson back in Oxford, mm -hmm. who was one of the, the tutors that I met, you know, that fateful time when I was, I guess I was 16 or 17, I went to Oxford for an open day. Uh, and I chose, so I wanted to find a Sanskrit text that had some relevance to the, this sort of world of rather kind of wild, wandering bubbers that, that I was part of. And in fact, there are very few that have any direct relevance to that world. Uh, and just about the only ones that are, are the ones on Hatha Yoga. I mean, I was already interested in yoga, um, but because of that, you know, my choices were limited to, to texts on Hatha Yoga. So I, I, I searched out, uh, I, I tried to find a text that hadn't been edited or published before, i.e. a text that was only available in manuscripts. And I was uh, very much helped in that by a book by uh, a Frenchman called Christian Bouy, mm. who, had, who was probably the first, in fact, almost certainly the, the first sort of serious scholar to really look at the texts of the physical Hatha Yoga tradition. And he, he'd identified this text called the Ketri Vidya as being important. And it was, of course, unpublished. So I, I settled on that. And from reading his book and from digging around a bit more, I uh, discovered there were about, I, I, I knew of seven manuscripts of the text, but I ended up finding 30. Okay, as wow. I read, was catalogued under more um, names and so forth. So that's my excuse for why it took me six years to finish my PhD. <laughs> uh, and then, then after that, so I finished my PhD, but what I realized then, okay, so I focused on this one particular fairly esoteric focused text on Hatha Yoga. So it's about Kichri Mudra, mm -hmm. about the practice in which you turn your tongue back above your palate in order to drink the Amrita, the nectar of immortality that's, yeah. that's from the top of your head. Um, but what I realized was that the, the bigger picture of Hatha Yoga that I'd read about in secondary literature, so, you know, books by scholars trying to, uh, trying to analyze the history of, of physical yoga practice, was that none of it made sense anymore. There were so many things that, that I would read about that didn't fit with either my textual studies or what I was seeing in the field with, with yogis. So I spent the next... Um, seven or eight years kind of informally researching that so I kept going to India and I kept gathering more and more manuscripts and I was reading the manuscripts but at the same time I had a job um, as a translator for the clay Sanskrit library so there's this big project uh, producing translations of, of Sanskrit poetry but this was a fantastic job because it gave me the freedom to, to be where I wanted to be to do what I wanted to do I had one meeting one and one deadline a year and I'm very much kind of last minute person with my deadlines but in that context you know last few months and the last two or three months of each year were generally a mad scrabble to to, to you know i would just sit down and lock myself away for a couple of months and translate non-stop to get that work done but the rest of the time i was kind of you know gave me the freedom to carry on with 
research on on yoga without even really publishing you know i, I had no um i'm kind of i've my academic career has been somewhat unorthodox in that i never really intended to pursue it hmm. as such so i felt no no uh, necessity to publish and i just amassed huge amounts of notes and transcriptions of manuscripts and so forth which i most of it is still sitting unpublished on on my laptop but at the end suddenly the translation project came to a sort of crashing halt with no warning and then i found myself out in the wilderness somewhat uh wondering, you know with a with a young family starting and all of that wondering how the hell i was going to support myself so one of the things i did was start churning out um academic articles using the research i've been doing and and so I was able to present um, a kind of new understanding of the of the, of the history of Hatha Yoga, uh, which I think, you know, really, I mean, it wasn't that people had studied the same stuff before and got it wrong. It was basically people had not really studied it closely at all. No one had done any serious text critical study of the texts of, of Hatha Yoga. And at the same time, no one had really spent time... Uh, living with yogis in india no academics anyway and exploring their um their, their yoga practice and then through combining the two i was able to kind of um reassess which traditions were responsible for what and, and when these practices came about and where they came from and so forth so i started producing articles then they seemed to go down well uh and then then i was very lucky in 2013 i think it was a position came up at soas the Sanskrit position there, and I applied for that. Got lucky. I think probably they recognised that. Um, you know, I've, yeah. Another another way I've been very lucky um, is that this. You know, I call it a career. It never felt like it. it. Only feels like a career now, but it didn't for the first twenty years. But this career of mine has coincided with the huge boom in in physical yoga practice around the world. Yeah, so suddenly. Right. Suddenly, what when I started working on it, it seemed very esoteric. And yeah, suddenly your work has currency. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. I, yeah, that was that was another lucky break, I guess. Yeah, that's excellent. I mean, it's it's very refreshing to hear that you know a scholar you you spent much of your scholarly life really just pursuing it for the passion of it. I feel like that's not a that's not a common <laughs> refrain so much anymore. It's you know publish or perish, and and that's sort of the primary incentive. So it's. It's wonderful that you've been able to really pursue this from the passion of it, and it just sort of things aligned to the in a way that was, again, you know, gave your work currency. So I want to ask you uh, about, um, you know, this word philologist. That I was watching one of the videos of you giving a talk, and the woman who introduces you says you self-identify as a philologist. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I've you know, I heard this word here and there. Most famously, I think was Nietzsche considered himself a philologist, and but besides oh, yeah. that, you don't really see it much anymore. So what is philology? And how does the method of philology differ from how other scholars of ancient texts might approach translation and whatnot? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very good, uh, difficult question, and, and quite a lot of uh, ink has been spilt, or whatever the digital equivalent is. Bytes right. have been been flicked or flipped, um, <laughs> uh, but trying to explain what it is. And I guess the sort of most prominent in in my world, the most prominent theorist these days is Sheldon Pollock, mm. and I think his his kind of basic working definition is that philology is, is trying to make sense of texts. I see. Um, I use it in a more, I suppose, a more specific way, kind of as it as it was done, perhaps in the you know 18th, sorry, 19th, maybe possibly the 18th century, definitely the 19th century and first half of the 20th century. Um, 
meaning kind of text critical studies. So uh, looking at the uh, original sources, original witnesses, manuscripts, uh, and and in the context of Sanskrit texts, that involves, you know, normally with a text, some texts, okay, you only find one one manuscript, but almost that's that's unusual. Normally, you have a a bunch of manuscripts, and you get them all together, and then you collate them. You look at the different readings. So it's a bit like Chinese whispers, particularly uh, if the, you know, the the texts are generally, so the texts I work with are generally sort of 800 to 500 years old, from about to, maybe the 11th, 12th century up to the 15th, 16th century. That's right. the area I focus on. And just about none of the manuscripts, maybe the, there may be one manuscript, and even that one I'm not sure about, uh, that I've ever worked with, none of them are from the time when the text was written because paper doesn't last, you know, more than two or 300 years in India. Um, so these texts have had to be copied and copied and copied, you know, so a right. Maharaja or a, or a big temple would have a library and they would have scribes who would uh, keep copying the, the manuscripts in their possession because of the heat and the humidity and the insects yeah. and so forth, the manuscripts don't last. So what you do is you end up, like I said with my, Kitri Vidya, uh, my PhD thesis, I ended up with about 30 manuscripts of this text, and they all uh, have different readings in some places, <laughs> more than others. And so, that so my job is to look at the differences uh, on a on a tiny scale, and also on a bigger sort of structural scale. Sometimes whole chunks will be moved around, or a chapter will be left out, and then. On one level, you can then group together the manuscripts or witnesses, because obviously, if if a if a group of of, of manuscripts share, uh, particularly a mistake, mistakes are more significant than the things that are correct. But if they share a big mistake, then you can kind of group them together mm. and think that they've descended from one original manuscript, which had which was the first to have that mistake. But then, by looking at all of that, you then try and work out a sort of family tree. Um, philology sometimes gets criticized as being some almost like sort of eugenics that you're trying to uh create the best the original text and go back to the true pure lineage you know sometimes it gets sort of talked about in the same breath as nazism for example and you know it's a, you know because the nazis were associated with indian philology to some extent and you know some people have tried to tar us all with the same brush mm. um but that actually that's that's not that's not how it's done. So, for example, with the Ketri Vidya, I mean, it can be in some cases. In some texts, yeah, you can. With some texts, you can try to recreate the original. But it, with most texts, that's actually always going to be impossible. Mm -hmm. Say, you know, texts are often written. Uh, some texts are quite obscure for the first few centuries of their existence, and then suddenly get popular, and then they get changed and so forth as a result because of the new historical context. So, with the Ketri Vidya, what I was trying to do. I mean, I could see by looking at the different manuscripts, so the earliest layer of the text, it clearly was produced by the kind of um, a kaula, left-hand tantric tradition in which, um, you know, antinomian sort of unorthodox rites were, were current, in, in particular drinking alcohol. So in the oldest recension of the text, there are lots of verses in praise of madira, which means alcohol. And that was then changed in subsequent manuscripts to kechari, which nicely fits the meter as well, generally. And so that in itself, so this is, you know, it sounds like tedious work, and it is often very tedious work, because you have to sit there and, you know, particularly when there aren't any significant variants, and you've got to read through a manuscript and add and check it against all the other ones. It can be very slow and boring work. 
but <laughs> by building up from the the, the 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 significant variations that you do find you can then draw these bigger you know then you can you can kind of step back and and draw big conclusions about the big picture of the topic that you're studying so you know it became clear in the with with the Ketri Vidya that a more orthodox a more kind of ascetic perhaps a more straight-laced yogic tradition took over the text wanted to get rid of these kind of more uh, unorthodox extreme tantric practices and bring it more in line with with with, with what was going on and, and again you know the only way you can make sense of this is by looking at how the text has changed over the years mm. um so yeah that's that's philology it had a rather a bad press particularly in sort of 20 30 years ago <laughs> postmodernism came along and and people thought it was uh i'm not quite, i mean i've never i've never put it this way no one who's ever done this kind of work has ever decided it was pointless there's been a lot of sniping from the sidelines by people who who, who can't do it and <laughs> yeah right bothered to do it and you think it's you know try and say it's uh yeah some kind of um elitist uh essentialist project but no and it's the only way to do good history especially when the only sources you've got are text so are there are there actually any philology departments i feel like i've never seen a philology department before there aren't there used to be there used to be there may be in germany actually oh okay there used to be big departments of philology and you used to have professors of philology or professors of indian philology now i mean generally there are, there are professors of indology and they yeah. you ask them they might say that indology is indian philology in fact sheldon pollock a recent article by him um argues that in order to sort out the humanities, you know, because obviously humanities are going through a bit of a crisis in mm-hmm. university at the moment, he thinks that they should uh, reintroduce departments of philology. I mean, it makes sense from the inside, but I'm not sure it would make sense. <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks that would save humanities? Yeah, because he thinks, you know, I think he's quite right. A, a hell of a lot of what, what humanities scholars are doing is trying to make sense of text in that yeah. space. Um, and so that's a way of kind of bridging the the uh, the walls that have been, or if that's not quite the right metaphor, breaking down the walls that have been created within the academy between different um, disciplines. I see. Because uh, you could have a philology of a vari- of texts from a variety of different disciplines. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. So oh, then, then scholars in different regions and different uh, areas of the humanities could, could talk to each other. Interesting. Okay, so let's let's move on to Hatha Yoga. So um, just to get real, you know, introductory here, uh, I would love for you to just kind of explain what Hatha Yoga is, and then maybe we can just move into kind of the history of where it all comes from. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm writing, I laugh because I'm writing a very overdue paper on the subject right now. And of oh, course, my um but my my understanding of what hatha yoga is changes from month to month almost well it gets added to or or or, or altered and i and, and in this in the introduction of this paper i I'm, i go into this to some extent because so my i've now running this um this big research project there's yeah. five six of us on the team now uh and we it's mainly philological mm-hmm. but there's also anthropology so i get out to do a bit of field work every now and then but we've got a uh, uh, one of the, one member of the team is sort of on almost permanent field work at the moment. She'll be writing up over the coming years. But one of the things that she's been doing, and I've been with her occasionally, is asking these yogis and asking people in India what is Hatha Yoga, you know, to try and get to the bottom of it. And they 
almost without exception, maybe one or two percent will answer in the way you might expect, i.e. the way that Hatha Yoga is defined and used in Sanskrit texts. Uh, but the rest of them have a quite different answer. And that the, the, so the word Hatha in Sanskrit or Hat in Hindi um, can mean force, but it also means kind of um, stubbornness, persistence, mm. doing something blood, you know, bloody-mindedly. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, is that an American phrase? We talk about being bloody-minded in England. Which I, means I, it's just, not an American phrase, but I think we get it. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of... And and uh, so it's basically aiming, you know, having a goal in mind and doing whatever it takes to get there. So yeah. one 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 yogi kind of said, you know, it's like a traveler uh, following a path on a long journey. In the mm. path, the road will will wind around hazardous uh, uh, obstacles like a forest or a lake or a mountain or whatever. Whereas the, the hutta yogi would just walk straight and you know whenever whenever the path takes a bend he'll ignore it and go straight through the the dangerous forest or whatever and uh and more than several times actually both of us have been told by yogis you know they'll say to us okay so you guys are academics if you decided you were going to do whatever it takes to become a professor you know it doesn't matter who you who you piss off on the way what you know what unethical behavior you do that would be hatha yoga wow uh, and so when that's applied in the context of religious practice, it's generally used um, to refer to, you know, the sort of extreme, really difficult, dangerous practices undertaken by certain ascetics. You know, you, most obviously these kind of um, physical austerities such as standing up for years on end and, and so forth, because they those methods are seen as dangerous, but also if they're if you survive them, the most efficacious at reaching reaching the goal. Mm, okay. And so, and then Hatha Yoga in text, and this is the, I'm, I haven't actually written yet for, in this paper, so this is good for me to work it out and, and, and say it. But Hatha Yoga in the text is, is used very specifically, and it's really a scholarly construct um, to describe um, physical methods that help the, the process of yoga. Now, it seems that these physical methods were developed among these uh, celibate, you know, uh, ascetic traditions, some of whom engaged in these extreme austerities. But in particular, in the earliest formulations, in the first text to, to uh, teach Hatha Yoga and describe its practices, you know, teach a systematic form of it, uh, its practices, the, the distinctive practices of Hatha Yoga, because they're used in addition to, the, in, the, in this text, the Dattatreya Yoga Shastra, they are used in addition to the eight angas of Patanjala yoga mm. and the, the practices of these nine um, mudras, nine physical techniques for controlling the vital energies, basically the breath and bindu or um, semen in men <clears throat> so it's, the, you know, and, and the the way the physiology is understood in these these early Hatha yoga texts is that this bindu is being produced in, in, the, in the head, in the skull of men, and is constantly dripping down and being expended through being ejaculated or being burnt up in the fire in the stomach, and that process is responsible for old age and, and dying. Uh, and, but there are techniques you can use to reverse this. So, um, And these techniques include, for example, the Ketri Mudra, the tongue practice. By doing that, that seals the amrita in the head, or by doing a headstand, that uh, uses gravity to reverse the flow and so forth. So these methods, the way I understand it, they were developed by these celibate yogis as being they're kind of complementary or even essential physical techniques 
to preserve and enhance the the, the benefits of celib celibacy, which are um, you know uh, crucial to the yoga practice of these ascetics. Mm. So you've said a couple of interesting things I want to go back to. So one is that you know one of the kind of common ways that people define hatha, you just, you define it as force or um, stubbornness, bloody-mindedness. And, um, and it's often, people often translate it as sun and moon. You know, it's this way of like capturing the kind of unified nature of yoga. So where does that definition come from? Okay. Yeah, well, then that's a good question. And that, that first appears in a text called the Yoga Bija, which is probably 14th century, and then crops up in a few subsequent texts. But to me, I mean, I think I think the reason, because an interesting thing, again, that I've been writing about in this paper is that the 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 the, the name Hatha Yoga, uh, even when it gets introduced in the 15th century in this text, the Hatha Pradipika, the Light on Hatha, mm -hmm. uh, which becomes the, you know the go-to text for anyone after that who's who's writing about Hatha Yoga, but quite a lot of texts don't actually use the word Hatha mm. after that. Um, almost the majority of texts, because I think it does have this 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 connotation of extreme sort of bloody-minded behavior that would be associated with, um, you know, slightly crazy ascetics and so forth. And so the texts either ignore it, you know, just don't use the word, they teach the practices, but they don't use the phrase hatha, hatha yoga or the word hatha, or like the yoga bija, they offer this new kind of um, what's been called the sort of esoteric definition. And you get this, you know, get these kind of definitions quite a lot um, in saying, so it's not Hatha yoga. It's not yoga by means of Hatha, i.e. by means of force or stubbornness or whatever. It's Hatha yoga in which yoga means union and Ha and Ta are the sun and the moon. I always get it. I'm never quite sure. I always, I've got this wrong so many times that I think I'll never get it right again. Anyway, <laughs> it's the sun and Ta is the moon or, yeah. or versa. But the, I mean, one of the reasons why I get it wrong is because this is an artificial construct. You don't yeah. find it anywhere else. You know, I've looked into, and others, my colleagues have looked into mm -hmm. big kind of mantra dictionaries. And uh, it's not like Ha means the sun and Ta means the moon. This is, this, it's a way of kind of overriding the obvious connotation of the phrase of extreme or practice by saying, no, no, that's not what it means. It means uniting the sun and the moon, which corresponds to the left and right breath or the, the sun in the stomach and the moon in the head and, and so forth. All right. So, so it's not it's not without textual precedent because you said it's in the Yoga Bija because I, I asked that because I sort of thought maybe it was just a modern invention that, you know, fluffy, you know, modern day yogis made up. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Certainly, it's, no. It's got textual precedent, and it does. You know, it is. You do see it. It's not only in that text as well. It does crop crop up in in subsequent texts to some extent. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so then, and then the other one that I thought was the other thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting the the idea of hatha being related to force and you know and really force being like if you you know if the straight path leads through some un unethical you know you know unethical from a certain perspective <laughs> decisions you know you're gonna you're gonna get there that's that's hatha but that's very interesting because hatha yoga is often associated with kind of you know ethical principles whether they are from uh you know the 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 yoga sutras or from somewhere else but but here's what i hear you saying is that the practice or the the discipline of hatha is is doesn't really have an alignment with any particular ethical framework is that correct 
Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, to some extent. Well, again, you know, we've got to draw the distinction between the use of hatha as it's understood in sort of vernacular discourse, you know, when it's being yeah. used in Hindi and so forth, or from when it appears in, in, the, in the text, you know, where it might then be reinterpreted as ha plus ta sun and moon, because we do find in some texts, I mean, the hatha pradipika, even though it doesn't go in, it doesn't list the yamas and niyamas, which would be the sort of... yeah. The ethics of of yoga. It does ref, it does mention them once in passing, I think, and it says that ahimsa is the best of them. Um, so, yes, I think yeah. Within the so, we, as I say, you've got to draw a distinction between the this scholarly construct that is hatha yoga, in which I think we would find ethic ethical practice, and then the the vernacular living understanding of of, of the concept of hatha yoga, in which. Um, Perhaps not. I mean, maybe maybe I shouldn't overplay the ethical side of it. Although, I mean, even in its earliest mentions, so this is, a, a, again, a, a part of my paper I need to work through a bit more. And, and here I'm building to some extent on the, the work of my colleague Jason Birch, who published a paper in 2011 called The, the Meaning of Hutter. Um, and the earliest references to it come actually in tantric Buddhist works from the late late first millennium. And there it seems to be used, it seems to be used in the context, it is seen almost as unethical or going against the, the right, usual right. usual methods of practice. Unethical, again, perhaps a bit strong, but it's it corresponds to, because these, all the, these, these tantric Buddhist uh, cults and traditions from the late first millennium, uh, sexual rituals were, were central to their practices, uh, but not, not as we might understand, you know, in kind of popular... Sort of sting, sting-inspired understandings of of, of tantric te- of, of of tantric practice in which it's sexual intercourse which goes on, you know, without consummation or without um, ejaculation. Uh, within the the tantric Buddhist traditions, um, there are four stages of bliss, and the third one uh, is involves ejaculation for the man, obviously, and then the the fourth one is the kind of post-orgasmic state. Now, hatha yoga, as understood in these very earliest obscure references in these tantric buddhist texts is is explained as a reversal now this is this is new this is hot off the press by the way there's a tantric, uh, heard it uh, here first folks yeah exactly <laughs> a new edition is amazingly scholarly book uh, known as the red brick this huge red hardback of, uh, of a text called the Seka nirdesha published by two fantastic scholars um harunaga isaacson and francesco sfera and in that, they analyze these, they go into quite a lot of detail about the, the arguments within these tantric Buddhist traditions about Hatha Yoga. And basically, the Hatha Yoga, in some, in, it is defined in some texts in which it is said to be the sort of forceful stopping of the bindu or bodhicitta in these traditions, i.e. the semen from leaving the penis during the, the, uh, the, the sexual ritual. And it's then the, the kind of scholarly commentators and exegetes uh, they say that Hatha Yoga is reversing the third and fourth blisses of the of the tantric rite. Now, it's not explained exactly what that means, but I, I suspect that this is, you know, this perhaps is 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 a kind of um, some of the earliest evidence for this notion of non-orgasmic or non-ejaculatory tantric ritual. Uh, and I think what we can also see. In subsequent proper Hatha Yoga texts, you know, Hatha Yoga texts where the practices are actually taught. Uh, so, in that first one that I mentioned earlier, the Dattatreya Yoga Shastra, uh, we've got this Vajroli Mudra, uh, which is a 
practice of kind of urethral suction of, of being able to draw liquids um, up the penis. And I've just written a, I gave a, a lecture on this a while ago, which I put up on my academia site, but I've just completely revised it and it's going to be, uh, it's ready for publication, I think. And anyway, I argue in that, that the purpose of this practice is to um, overcome the uh, ejaculatory impulse Mm. Um, and again, in the name Vajroli is very uh, redolent of tantric Buddhist traditions. You know, Hindu Shaiva tantric traditions don't talk about Vajras. So Vajroli instantly suggests that we're coming out of tantric Buddhism here. So it seems that somehow we have Hatha Yoga, when it then becomes synthesized in the in the 15th century in the um, in the Hatha Pradipika, is the Hatha Pradipika, Hatha Pradipika brings together lots of different, loads of different streams of yogic practice, okay? And one of them is this, seems to be this this, this tradition that was derived from these tantric Buddhist uh, uh, cults. Uh, but those tantric Buddhist cults uh, lineages died out in India um, sometime around 13th, 14th century, it seems. There are traces of them. They continued in Tibet, but they, they pretty much vanished from from India. So yeah, that you know, this is something I've been I'm looking into a lot at the moment because another another text. So the the earliest text to teach any of the practices uh, that then become defined as Hatha Yoga is a text called the Amrita Siddhi. So that's earlier than this 13th century Dattatreya Yoga Shastra, and I've been working on this for the last 10 years or something, but um, maybe more, even 15 years. I have I've had manuscripts of it. But I, only two years ago, I got hold of this, possibly, it's a long, complicated story, and I actually doubt it now, but uh, <laughs> a manuscript that, that says it was written in the 12th century. I have a feeling that it's a copy of a manuscript that was written in the 12th century, and they've just copied the, the, the colophon, the bit at the end that says what the, what the date is. But anyway, the, it's, it's an old text, and... And it's called, called the Amrita Siddhi. It teaches three of the mudras of Hatha Yoga. So the Mahabandha, the Mahabedha, and the Mahamudra. Um, and having, I had the privilege of reading it very closely with a colleague in Oxford who's expert on tantric Buddhism, which I am not. And it became clear there were bits of it, bits of it that had uh, remained obscure to me. But by, by reading it with him and with this very old manuscript, it soon became clear that the text itself was composed by tantric Buddhists again. So there seems to be, you know, the early stream, the earliest mentions uh, and evidence of Hatha yogic practice in texts, at least, um, uh, derived from these tantric Buddhist traditions. I see. So the 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 stream, the kind of stream of practices that you're speaking about, is this the same as when you, what you refer to in in your book as the Bindu Dharana ascetic tradition of Hatha Yoga? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So then when does that become grafted onto and where does the kundalini oriented kind of chakra related you call it laya yoga um, come from and how does that sort of intersection take place? Okay, well, I mean, this is exactly what my work is at the moment, is trying to, you know, untangle tease these. Tease that, yeah. Uh, yeah, tease that out. So it, it's become apparent that within these Buddhist traditions, it's a slightly more complicated because this Amrita Siddhi text, for example, uh, is very much for celibate yogis, whereas obviously these other Vajrayana traditions are for people who are having ritual sex. 
um, and we see something sim, and then they're in some way they are connected with these Nath yogi traditions. Okay, yeah. so Gorak Nath and Matsyendra Nath. And again, I've been sort of looking on the ground as well at, at, at the geographical sites where these these things might have happened. Been doing field work in Western India and Karnataka and in Gujarat and so forth. Now, those sites are also places where uh, of the Kaula traditions of Shaivism, so yeah. of Tantric uh, Shiva worship, uh, the Paschimamnaya, which is the Western stream. Now, these these. Um, these 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 sites are are where this Paschimamnaya uh, stream flourished, and it's within that tradition associated uh, with Matsyendra Natha, who's said to be the first guru of these, these this Nath order or the first human guru. Uh, it's within those traditions that we see the earliest um, development of uh, Kundalini, and in particular the six chakra system, which then gets mixed up gets overlaid onto this uh, bindu bindu yoga um sort of paradigm that we find in the amrita siddhi and datatraya yoga shastra so all these things get sort of mi- mixed together the first evidence of of the mixing as such is probably in a text called the viveka maratanda 13th century text that's attributed to uh, goraksha or goraknath and so there you get both the and there it's done rather clumsily. The two are just kind of interleaved without trying to make too much sense of it. But you get these, in some ways, somewhat conflicting paradigms. In particular, this the ascetic traditions that are, you know, obsessed with hanging on to their bindu. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, the, for them, you know, the, the, for them, you use these mudras, you use these physical techniques to reverse the, the general kind of downward flow of the body to turn the breath back up through the central channel and at the same time force the bindu back up through the central channel and keep them all jammed in the head. Um, now, the same practices get mixed with uh, the visualization-based techniques of right. these Kundalini and, and chakra traditions. Um, and so, so the same practices are then taught as methods of raising Kundalini up into the head. But then what happens, you got a curious thing, I, I remember finding I went, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, looking into this and suddenly realizing what was going on because some of the texts, they'll say, okay, so Kundalini, and these are the texts associated with these more ascetic traditions that are perhaps also obsessed with the whole Bindu dharana, holding on to the Bindu thing. They will say, right, Kundalini is the goddess. She rises up the central channel. She meets Shiva in the head. They join together in, in blissful union and then they just kind of disappear. And that's it. That's kind of samadhi or final nirvana. Those are in the more ascetic traditions. And then we find in the more kind of worldly, perhaps world embracing traditions, uh, less renunciatory, such as um, the, we find in the Ketri Vidya. She goes up, Kundalini goes up to the, to the head, meets, hangs out with Shiva, has fun with him, bathes in this pool of amrita or the nectar of immortality that's that's said to be found in the skull and then she goes back down to her base at the bottom of the spine and on the way she floods the body with the nectar of immortality that she's she's picked up in the head thereby making it you know younger and immortal and 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 so forth um but yeah that's but that this yeah it all gets interesting in terms of combining these different paradigms first of all in about the 13th century with the viveka martanda and then it's the the Ketri, sorry, the Hatha Pradipika in the 15th century that kind of really tries to bring all kinds of traditions together, including 
including ones that perhaps are more closely related to modern yoga practice, modern sort of right. asana. Right. And one thing I thought I thought was interesting about that is you remark that the Hatha Pradipika is the first text to start to distance itself from its sectarian roots, preparing the way for a pan-Indian yoga. So was this intentional? Was there a desire within, you know, the Hatha yogis at this time to distance themselves from their sectarian roots in order to be kind of evangelist in this way? Or is it is the motivation something else? Or was there a motivation? What are your thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and it's you know my answers will be speculative, right? Um, but yes, I so because you're quoting things that I wrote quite a long time ago, and I would anyone <laughs> listening who re, who reads my work, I would always advise them to read the latest thing because I'm okay. afraid I can change my mind, or or maybe I should say my thoughts are constantly evolving. But uh, no, I think that that still still um, stands up, and. Yes, because I mean, in the Hatha Pradipika, for example, there are you know, there's no mention of mantras. I think that's very significant, yeah. and I think that's not just because um, there's a slight backlash in some, in particularly the Dattatreya Yoga Shastra, like an earlier text, which um, you know, mantra is often associated with the tantric traditions right. and it yeah. distances itself from that. But I think in the Hatha Pradipika, that's not really what it's doing. I think it's more because it doesn't want to. Uh, mantras are generally the key to a to a particular tradition, you know, if you, uh, uh, to a, a particular religious tradition. So, a, you know, a Shaiva text will teach Shaiva mantras and so forth. And by identifying the mantras, you can kind of work out what um, what tradition a text is affiliated with. Similarly, with um, uh, visualizations, you know, if you if you look at the the dhyana, the meditation sec- section in a text, and you find what God is being visualized for meditation. That gives you a very good idea of what um, religious tradition the text is, is is associated with. But we get none of that in the Hatha Pradipika. Mm-hmm. We get long lists of sort of yogic masters from a, a variety of traditions. Now, there are plenty of uh, yogic masters from the Natha tradition who are listed at the beginning. I think there's about 30 of them. But actually, some of them, some of the of the names in that list are nothing to do with the, the Natha tradition. And, and in fact, uh, are known to have kind of been in rivals of theirs or in competition with them. And then elsewhere, we get mentions of Vasishta, for example, as, mm-hmm. as being one of the, the sages um, who who devised the, the, the various different postures taught in the text. So, yeah, it seems to be trying to appeal to a, a, a wide audience. But I don't think... So my feeling is, you know, my general feeling, again, it's, it's, it's very much conjecture, but that these texts were not written by or for the kind of full-time ascetic yogis. The texts are written for a, for a wider kind of mm. more, um, more general audience, um, perhaps of kind of sophisticated, uh, rich patrons. But, yeah, they... And so something like the Hatha Pradipika is not... You know, is is the, the author Swatmarama is kind of cunningly, I think, a he's bringing together teachings from a load of, from lots of uh, traditions which are in themselves, you know, do have strongly articulated philosophical and religious standpoints, but he kind of airbrushes them out. You know, he he leaves out those bits, so he brings them all together, and he so he brings it together into a a synthesis that should be reasonably palatable to everyone you know there's no no um no religious or metaphysical dogma and there's no uh, key indicators of sectarian affiliation like i mentioned mantras and 
and visualizations and so forth. And I think we find that more and more after the Hatha Pradipika as well. Lots of the texts that are then produced dealing with Hatha Yoga just look at the practice uh, mm. isolated on its own. You know, the author at the beginning might might say something to his Ishtadevata, to his chosen God. But then when the, the teaching progresses, it's then framed in a way that anyone can do it regardless of of their religious affiliation. Okay, excellent. So now I have a, I want to move into a few, um, I guess, more, maybe more provocative questions. Uh, and what the first one is, is the, uh, your thoughts on how the Patanjala Yoga Shastra, um, and for those that are listening, Patanjala Yoga Shastra, as I understand it, is, is meant to refer to both the sutras and their commentary of which they can't be separated is that correct or is it is it just the immediate commentary of vyasa or is it the whole commentarial tradition oh no it's just vyasa okay great it's just, just the what well, or supposedly vyasa because okay. now you know, now they're, they're, they're right. generally accepted but there are, there are plenty of people who don't accept it but i think i i fall on the the, the side of accepting it okay. um that they were yeah. two separate figures you mean uh, no, no, that the the, the 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 root text and the commentary that known as the Bhashya, which not until much later was ascribed to Vyasa. Okay. Um, this is one of the things. So Philip Maas is a scholar uh, based in well, he was based in Vienna. Now he's in Leipzig. He um, he's written extensively on that. So he's the he's the guy. He's you know he's working on a critical edition of the of of the Yoga Shastra, Patanjali Yoga Shastra. And he has um, very clearly articulated this this argument. Okay. So my question then is, what are your thoughts on the Hatha Yoga tradition as it is, you know, represented in the West today, um, uh, grounding itself and and really talking about the Patanjali Yoga Shastra as sort of the central and seminal text of their tradition? And you remark, and I can't remember which writing it was, that you know this seems in some sense problematic because um, this is sort of more aligned with a kind of philosophical tradition that is not exactly the Hatha Yoga tradition. So what are your thoughts on that kind of marriage of these two, the philosophical and the, and the Hatha Yoga practices as we're seeing it in, you know, teacher trainings and yoga studios? Mm, Well, my thoughts, I mean, I, my, well, but one, whenever I think about it, so, so in Roots of Yoga, I think someone actually counted the number of texts that we've provided translations from and counted 160. I, we never actually got around to counting it. But of those 160, much the most difficult one is, is the Patanjali Yoga Shastra. So that's the, you know, for each kind of line of translation of that, that that's the most time was spent on that because it's incredibly dense. It's an incredibly difficult text full of obscure idiosyncratic usages of, of terminology, complex Shastric type constructions and so forth. Um, you know, and the, it's these sutras in themselves are very terse, um, aphorisms it's difficult to tease out their meaning and then the commentary itself is it is difficult too so and it and it really doesn't deal with physical yoga practice in any yeah, way at all. right what it deals with is the kind of mental processes that that the yogi goes through in order to uh you know achieve yoga yoga as the goal um and so i would think it's rather ironic i mean it, you know it's, it's extremely difficult to understand. So, the, the, <laughs> you'd be, be, I think you'd be better off starting with something like the Hadra Pradipika and just following one of the Asana descriptions and, and trying trying to do that. 
So, um, yeah, I think it's somewhat ironic. But at the same time, I don't, you know, I, what, I don't think one should dismiss it completely. I think it's rather absurd that people start chanting it because it's not written in verse. <laughs> yeah, it's really I know I can I can name three people right now that I know that chanted. So you're saying it's not meant to be chanted? No, no. These sutra texts and commentaries are, are not written to be chanted. They may be written to be expounded at orally. So it wasn't know. part of an oral tradition. Uh, it, no, it may have been part of an oral tradition, but it wouldn't have been chanted. You know, the, the oh. texts that are texts that are meant to be memorized are written in meter because it makes them easier to memorize. So I think. Probably, again, it's all conjecture. We really don't know, but probably it would have been, you know, uh, a, a guru with a manuscript sitting around reading it and then expanding. Because the, the way that the commentarial tradition works, that's kind of, that is a written representation of exactly that, of a guru reading a text and then uh, explaining it yeah. as it goes along. So he'll give a, you know, what's called a gloss, you know, a word will come up. So Chitta Vritti Narodaha, and he'll, give a, a gloss, a, a, an alternative, you know, a, a, like a dictionary definition for each word and then explain how the grammar goes together. And then if he thinks there's something more interesting to be said, he'll say it. And that's exactly what you find in a, in a, um, in a commentary. And I don't know, you probably know better than I do, but I don't know if when people do chant it, if they're just chanting the sutras or if they're chanting the commentary as well. No, they just chant the sutras. Well, again, you see, so, so that doing that would be, somewhat well completely uh, uh rendered <laughs> nonsensical if one accepts which i do philip mars's assertion that the sutras and the commentary were written together and one of the key points actually of of philip's argument is that the the commentary or the, the sutras don't work syntactically on their own mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah, so the grammar yeah. the sutras actually requires in some instances requires the grammar of the commentary for them to make uh, grammatical syntactical sense mm. so yeah i mean if you're going to chant it that if you're going and if you want to keep up with the latest scholarly consensus you'd need to be chanting well at least reading the uh, the commentary as well right uh, well that's going to blow a lot of minds i'm glad you said that all right so uh, <laughs> <laughs> um so then my next i want to move into a couple because we're nearing the end of our time so one of the questions that i have um is you know, your colleague, Mark, Mark Singleton, who helped you with the book Roots of Yoga, which I thought was sort of, it's ironic, seems to me that he worked on a text that really is about the kind of, um, you know, the, the heritage of Hatha Yoga in, in the original manuscripts, and, and at least the way that his book has been received, which is, I think, different, and, and this is maybe where you can chime in about it, uh, because a lot of people, I think, have taken the yo- Yoga Body, that book, and read from it the idea, which I don't think is the claim he's making, that all modern asana is derivative of, you know, Swedish gymnastics, and that really what we're seeing doesn't pre-exist the 20th century. Do you think that that is a misunderstanding of what his argument is? Or do you think that, um, yeah, I just wonder what your thoughts are on this, because it seems funny that he would be involved in a, a project like Roots of Yoga when, when, the, when his project in Yoga Body seems to be so, at least on the surface, so antithetical to that. Hmm. Well, yeah, no, I think that that is a misrepresentation. And he he, he was it last year or year before he uh, there was I think it's a gosh what country was it Serbian edition of of Roots of Yoga which he provided a new introduction for and he 
he much more eloquently than I can sort of argues his his case there. But no, he I, he you know he's never said that it's all new. Okay. Um, he's just said that there are elements of it, and and in some schools they are very significant, prominent elements of it yeah. that we that we don't find you know in pre-modern uh, sources on yoga, i.e. The, the text. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he, you know, he gets there's a kind of singleton light theory, isn't it? That it's all, yes. it's all, it's all made up. Yeah, uh, I think every- that's a lot of ways how, at least, you know, in the kind of um, conversation in the wider yoga community, those who kind of take that book and kind of run with it, usually that's what they reduce it to is this sort of argument that yoga is no older than you know than Krishnamacharya. Or the asana right. yoga is no no older than Krishnamacharya, and before that it was just meditation or something like that. Ah, well, that's that's clearly not true because yeah. we, you know, the asanas, but you know, we get we get teachings on asanas seated postures from two thousand years ago, or is that the oldest? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, about two thousand years ago, and then it's not until about a thousand years ago we start getting more complex postures taught in text. But we know that they were being done from other sort of external texts which talk about what yogis are up to and they'll say oh, you know there was a yogi standing on his leg or whatever yeah we know that goes goes back as well to the time of alexander the great uh then within the the hatha yoga textual tradition we see a kind of steady proliferation of the number of postures that are taught now what we don't see in fact i the reason i was slightly late now is because i was talking to mark and jason and jason birch another colleague on our project he's in my saw at the moment because we're looking at a, uh, two or three texts. Obviously, Mysore is, is central, is key to this, uh, key to the development of yoga in, in, in the modern world. Um, but it, there are, there is evidence in some of these texts that something was going on in India um, prior to any uh, any influence from from globalized physical practice tradition. So that's something that we're trying to 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 delineate at the moment. We have a, you know, there's this, there's a there's a, a text called the Hatabhyasa Padati, which was then used as uh, a source text for uh, a text called the Sri Tattva Nidhi, which uh, Norman Sjoman has has published sections of, in particular the, the Asana section of. And one of the things we're looking at in there, I mean that that involves postures using ropes, uh, some repeated dynamic movements, and we do find repeated dynamic movements actually in a couple of other sort of 18th century yoga texts. Uh, but what we don't find, and in fact, we, you know, there's a slight within, I think Mark and Jason are keener than I am to find evidence of sequences within this text, but there's possibly some sequences. In fact, actually, I'll do a little plug now that we are, well, you only get a sort of a, a glimpse of it, but you'll be able to listen to more as well. I had a, a workshop as part of the project. We held a workshop in, uh, in London and Oxford in September last year. One of the things we did was to go through this text, the Hatabhyasa Padati, which Jason got a manuscript of from, from Pune, and we go through that text with a couple of uh, yogis trying to do the positions and trying to see how they would work as, as sequences. Um, because it does seem possible that there's some kind of sequential practice going on. But even if there is, it's nothing like what we find in... Yeah. In this sort of Ashtanga yoga, you know, this sort of the three or four series that, that you find there with these very closely um, uh, prescribed vinyasa joining link, linking sequences and so forth. We absolutely don't find anything like that. Right. Okay. Okay. So 
so then um, the 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 David Gordon White's Sinister Yogis. I read your article, um, <laughs> and I found mm. it very refreshing because I I actually. I, you know, I could, I didn't obviously have enough scholarly understanding to be able to point it out, but something felt like there was something felt like something was wrong about it. I had this hunch that it wasn't the whole story, and you really um, wonderfully um, deconstruct some of his position on that. So I wonder if you would just sort of um, rehash a little bit of that and why, you know, what was David Gordon White's agenda in that book, and why is it sort of problematic from a textual perspective? Okay, well, I, I was felt it was a rather um, strongly worded <laughs> article, uh, and I it was very uh, polemical, but it was great. <laughs> I put so much time into it, you know. I kind of, I, and as you can tell, it was a lot of work, and I went went very closely through the book. Um, so in the end, I felt I I should publish it, and I hope I've done a, a service to the scholarly and wider yoga community by doing so. Has he reached uh, out about it? Uh, he did, yeah. Before before it was published, actually, you got me to send him a draft, yeah. Um, and I you know I like David. David's a great guy, but his in terms of his scholarship, I think you know there's there's lots of great stuff in there. And I think I say that in the article. You I do, point you do, yeah. Lots of interesting things. But what he he often and he's done this with his other books. He feels the need to tie all that into some grand narrative theory. You know, and in that one, in Sinister Yogis, the, the grand narrative theory is that yogis were all bad, you know, weird magician. <laughs> okay. Which, you know, obviously there are plenty of cases of that happening, but to right. kind of then say that's what it was all about. And then he, you know, in some, I think, and again in the article, there are, I point out instances where he quotes from a text uh, something that says about a, talks about a yogi using Being his. Naughty do something bad but then he ignores the bit in the previous chapter which says about the lovely good yogi sitting under the on the mountainside meditating quietly for the good of humanity you know yeah so he he, he sort of cherry picks his 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 stuff a bit and actually going back to patanjali's yoga show so i really enjoyed i i really enjoyed david's book on on patanjali it was a biography, biography yeah you know, it's one of the, and he writes very well and it's very engaging and you know he was one of the people early on got me right into um studying all of this uh and i i enjoy that book but again i think that the the one one major flaw in that book for me is again he wants to have this he has this grand narrative of oh patanjali was not important in india until the west got interested in yoga and he says that the text have fallen into obscurity over the last 500 years now that's just simply not true Mm. Uh, i haven't published anything on this because i you know i please do habit of, of, of polemics and stuff but if one looks at manuscript categories ca- catalogs from uh, at the moment there are and you look at um uh, the the lists of, of yoga texts by far the biggest number of manuscripts is of the patanjali's yoga yoga sutra or yoga shastra and they're all you know relatively recent from the last two three four hundred years and it's so it's always been the scholarly go-to text if you're a pundit in India and you you, you come across some reference about yoga in a text that you're commenting on, you go, oh, God, right now, I better go and look up Patanjali. <laughs> see, see what he's got to say about it and put in a quote there. And, you know, it's always had that position. So, so yeah, what I, I think you know, with David, I think maybe he's, you know, he's trying to make these big, outrageous points. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, make, make a big, big, big point. Big but then... Yeah. As a result, he you know he misses the nuance, or he play he deliberately plays down the, the nuances in, in, in the story. Mm, mm. 
And I and I also like that you point out you you say that essentially he reduces the practices to the powers or the cities the the mm. what are the results of practices um, rather than talking about the practice itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think yeah, there's and I cite some evidence for that in in, in the book. Exactly. Yeah, it's great, and you can find that for anybody listening who's interested in that because I know, you know, you see, I always find it funny that when I see a yo a, a yoga practitioner, you know, modern day yoga practitioner reading that book because <laughs> I, I just imagine it being very destabilizing or, or <laughs> you know, if you're really interested in the in the in the history of actually giving credence or justifying your practice today in some way. Um, yeah. So I can, say, can I say one more yeah, thing? Yeah, please. Also, his his book Alchemical Body. I don't know if you know that one. Yeah, it's I do. Yeah, big sort of encyclopedic almost, and that again I think suffers from a similar problem. I mean, it's full of wonderful um, nuggets of information that he's dug up from you know really obscure places, and he does a great job of presenting all this stuff. But again, he he he's got this idea that that he's presenting that yoga, hatha yoga, and alchemy are inseparable. Now, that's one of the things that I said when I got to the end of my PhD thesis and I looked at what I'd done and how I tried to contextualize the text within a bigger understanding of the yoga tradition. And it was immediately apparent to me that there was absolutely no need to know anything about alchemy whatsoever mm. to, to understand this text. And in fact, the one mention of alchemy in it, I think, is it says, uh, or maybe it even, it even disses alchemy at one point. Certainly some other Hatha Yoga texts do say that alchemy is an obstruction to practice. And I think that text says that, you know, among a list of other things, it says if you if you get the, the, the practice right, then you will automatically get the powers of alchemy, you know. so you, and, But it's not as if it's framed within an alchemical, um, uh, you know, paradigm in, in in any way. So that's, that's, again, something that I think may confuse, you know, if uh, students wanting to understand the history of yoga come to that book, they may think, right, it's all about alchemy, but it's really not. I mean, there, there, there were parallel traditions within the Nath history, and, al and the al alchemists were an important part, but they were not the people who were doing Hatha Yoga. I see. So uh, do you think that that, um, that habit that he has is really a kind of wider sort of scholarly, based on a, like a wider scholarly desire when writing books to have some kind of, you know, thread of theory that's going to kind of tie the whole thing together? Is that... Uh, I mean, is that something that we see often and not really something that is specific to David Gordon White? Um, gosh, well, no, I wouldn't say you do see it that often. Certainly okay. not the, you know, not the scholars that I, that I, I, that I try and try, that I read, you know. Yeah, of course. Because I, again, I'm generally reading. The thing is, uh, and yeah, another thing I'd say about is that he's, you know, he's not really what I would call a philologist, David. Right, and, yeah. Yeah, you 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 do a, you uh, make a few observations, sort of scaling sca scathing critiques yeah. of, of, of his of his mistranslations and mis exactly yeah exactly and and, and that's that's a, you know again people have been dismissive of dismissive of philology and manuscript work and so forth, but within the Indian Indian tradition in particular, you know there are estimates that there are thirty million manuscripts out there in libraries in India. Wow of which only 1%, if that, you know, less have been read in the last 100 years. And so just about any subject that you're looking into, and this has been what's such a joy for me over the last 20, 25 years, whatever, is that there are, you know, all these manuscripts, all this new stuff on, on yoga and Hatha Yoga in particular that hasn't been looked at. So uh, you really need to go back and look closely at the text. So, you know, it's, people are... 
I think David perhaps is too quick to make big generalizing theories without having looked at all the evidence. So this right. is what happened. Then started looking closely at the evidence, and then, hang on, it doesn't match what I've read in David's and and and, and other books. Um, so yeah, so I try if I'm you know I try to restrict myself to reading the the, the serious textual scholars who are who are engaging directly with the manuscripts and, and the texts of the tradition, because, uh, you know, if you're not doing that, then then you're not really unearthing anything new, uh, and there's a good chance that anything you say is going to be knocked down by someone who does look at the, at the text, because often there are only evidence. So, so then let's end on kind of an inspiring note for those who are, you know, the, the small minority of our audience who will be interested in kind of looking at these texts. So, you know, and I've heard this, this is a common refrain now that there are just so many, so many texts and, and still so few scholars really focused on, on them. Yes. And yeah. um, so is there, I mean, is, is the environment conducive? I mean, obviously you have research for your work, but is this sort of a general kind of shift to there is a lot of support and, and, and funding for this kind of research? If someone was to be interested in becoming a philologist like yourself and, and, and working with texts in this way? Um, no, I think it's only, it's getting more difficult to be honest. Oh, I mean, really? Yeah, because the, all the as I, as we sort of touched upon briefly before, the humanities departments and Indology departments in universities have been slowly being shut down. You know, over the, the last few decades, this kind of neoliberalist idea of the university it doesn't really fit. You know, yeah. Yeah. In, in in England now, just this new thing just came in in the last month, whereby uh, universities are graded on their teaching, and one of the you know which is ridiculous in itself, but one of the ways they try to measure quality of teaching is by the the jobs that your graduates get no no yeah <laughs> oh <laughs> my well gosh. Paid they are. you know so that's not that's in not, the uk that's, yeah that's not good news for sanskrit apparently we're the only country in the world that the, the the minister was proudly saying we're the first country in the world what? to introduce. i thought I was, the uk but, was always so level-headed about these kinds of things oh <laughs> yeah what about brexit i think our reputation being yeah. level-headed about anything is going <laughs> he's gone out the window <laughs> All right. Well, this has been such an interesting conversation. Is it, James, is there anything that you want to end with in terms of, you know, I don't know, an overarching idea or, or something you want to share about your research or anything else that we maybe haven't mentioned? Um, no, well, as you say, I mean, I hope I do hope that this that, uh, that mine and my colleagues research, you know, it do, does inspire further students to, to get stuck in, read the, the read the text closely. So the, the project that I'm engaged on at the moment, we're going to produce 10 critical editions of, of, of texts that haven't been published before. And we will also have two or three books going with that to analyze them and contextualize them historically. But they will provide a huge fund of new kind of um, re, re, a new resource to to for anyone to go in and like kind of think about any aspect of the history of yoga, and there'll, there'll be lots of material there, and hopefully that will inspire people to to write their own books and and learn Sanskrit themselves, and go and find the other texts that deal with these things, and and keep this kind of tradition of of, of scholarship uh, and alive. And also, I would also say that very for anyone who really does want to understand. Where it's all coming from, I think it's, it's a it's it's a good idea to go out to India and, and hang out with some yogis as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a very different world from the the yoga studio in in London. Or oh, I bet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, then, it, it, for somebody that's interested in in studying the text, is it would would they need to kind of do the kind of global 
you know, search research that you've done, or there are there some online databases now of of texts that are that are untranslated, and uh, are, are, is there anyone working on that? That's a good point. Yeah, more and more libraries are digitizing their collections. So, yeah, for example, so yeah, that made me think instantly of in Jodhpur, the Merengar fort there has got the richest library of, mm. of yoga texts in the world because the Maharaja in the early 19th century was a major devotee of yogis and they have digitized their entire collection I don't Amazing. think they put it up online but I think if you write to them and they, they may ask for a little bit of money but they will send you scans of their manuscripts and so forth and there's and hundreds and hundreds of those texts have not been translated or published or anything like that so yeah that's a, a rich resource for sure all right excellent all right great so then uh james is there any for anyone that wants to kind of get a, a, in touch with you or ask you any questions is there a way should should i should we just point them to your academia.edu page i'm not sure if you have a website or anything uh, yeah, I've got a, a website that I haven't updated for years at <laughs> com. but probably more useful will be our project website which is mm. hyp.soas so s-o-a-s dot a-c dot u-k and as I mentioned I think we're about to um, go live on there with a film of our workshop which includes some of this sort of, you know, trying to make sense of, of asanas through the text and also all the audio and the handouts that went with all the, the 20 presentations from these fantastic scholars all, all working on manuscripts of, of yoga texts. So, and if anyone actually wants to contact me, then just write on my, um, my uh, work address, my SOAS email address, which is jm, it's for Jim Mallinson, jm63 at soas.ac.uk. All right, excellent. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that video. And when it gets when it um, gets shared on the website, I'll, I'll go ahead and link to that in the in the okay. show notes to this podcast. It may be, be today. It might even be oh, today. Oh, really? Oh, cool. It's okay, I'll check it out. All right, thanks, James, so much. This has been such a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, thank you for all the excellent work that you're doing. All right, thanks, Jacob. Thanks a lot.